My question for you as we begin to look at this text, this Psalm of David, is do you believe Christianity to be true because it is intellectually credible? Or do you believe Christianity to be true because it is experientially satisfying? That is, it is emotionally credible. Is Christianity something I know because I can, I know is true because I can rationally verify it? Or is Christianity true because I have undeniably experienced it? Is Christianity about biblical truth and doctrine? Or is Christianity about spiritual experience? Okay. What if the answer is yes? What if it's a both and rather than an either or? What if, what if it's, yes, Christianity is intellectually credible, and yes, Christianity is experientially satisfying? What if it's, yes, Christianity is about biblical truth and doctrine, and yes, Christianity is about experiencing God? And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, some of you are intellectually serious, and you're really skeptical about your feelings. Others of you are driven by experience. You're more emotive in the way that you think. And you've found your experience of God to then line up with what you see in Scripture. You might have cut a different path toward truth, like, like your point of origin on this journey that we're on trying to walk with God. Your point of origin may be different than the person that you're sitting next to right now or the person that comes to mind when you think about Christians. But those of you who are followers of Jesus have all arrived at the same place of trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. So for those of you who are skeptics, those of you who are trying to understand what story Christianity is telling about the human condition and about reality, you look at your doctrinally driven Christian friend and you think, man, my friend is just trusting in what they've received, what was handed down to them. It's all head. It's no heart. And you think to yourself, I am a 21st century individual. I am an authentic individual and I need to experience for myself. I can't receive it as though it's handed down to me. It has to be something that comes from within. It's interesting. Because we really live in an age of low trust in historic institutions, and we live in an age of high trust in personal experience. So if, if you think that, and you're skeptical about Christianity, and you're saying, I don't know if I want to just give sort of mental assent to a list of doctrines, I want to experience it for myself, it makes sense that you would struggle with more of a propositional truth kind of angle, and that you would think that you'll thrive on personal experience. Because we live in an age that doubts propositional truth and is very high on experience. Now, I want you to hear me. I am not afraid of your desire to experience God. I came to Christ as an adult in an entirely experiential way. I had zero catechism. I had zero Sunday school. I had zero Bible engagement. But I knew that 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 God loved me, that Christ died for me, that somehow God had given me his spirit. It was all before I ever opened a Bible. And say, how? I had a transformative encounter with God. I could not explain. And I had someone explain it to me. 
That didn't mean I had answers to all the questions that were rattling around in my inquisitive mind at the time. It just meant that my experience of God lined up with what people later told me about God. See, my experience led me to truth. So my question again is, what about you? Christ City, are you in the both and category or are you in the either or category of thinking about our truth and experiences? And here's my point. And the point that I'm trying to make and draw out of this text today is that truth and experience go hand in hand. There's a, there's a hand in hand relationship between truth and experience. Truth and experience are like two pedals on a bicycle. If you're doing it right, one will naturally lead to the other, reinforce the other. If you tend more toward felt experience, that's great. Make sure that it leads to a deep engagement with the truth. You need the truth of Scripture to ground your experience. On the other hand, if you tend more toward a serious engagement with truth, then hear me, all I'm saying is you just need to experience your theology. You don't need to look for an experience beyond your theology. You need an experience of your theology. And I think that's what David has here in this psalm. This is a psalm of deep devotion in the midst of trial. And if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, you can see that the heading of the psalm right before verse 1 says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, I don't want to spend time speculating which time this was that he was out in the wilderness, either being chased or whatever he was doing, because trouble sort of followed him around. But what I know is true is that David was king at this point, and I don't think he was out in the wilderness on some sort of fun camping trip trying to get nice pictures for his social media presence, okay? He was out in the wilderness for a reason. He was suffering trials. The point is the guy's in trouble. He's in the desert wilderness of Judah, fleeing from some kind of trouble and some kind of trial, and the trial and trouble are actually drawing the devotional best out of him. Look at verse 1. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The thirst he has during this time in the desert becomes an expression of the way he feels about knowing that God is with him and that God is for him, but he's longing for more. He has the knowledge that this is true, but his experience in the moment is that it's a bit dry. He says, oh God, you are my God. He says, you are my God. That's covenantal language. That's language of deep relational intimacy. You might know my wife, Allison. You might know her. But when I say that she is my Allison, it's something different. You might talk to her and she might say, well, you know my husband, and you'd say yes. And she says, oh, that's my bread. You know something about the relationship we have when that's true. It's a covenantal language of deep relational intimacy and union. So when David says, oh God, you are my God, he's saying something about his relationship with him. And when David says his soul thirsts for God and his flesh faints for God, he is saying in my whole being, I long for you and I need you. 
He's saying he wants to experience his theology. He knows what is true, but he's hungry, he's thirsty, and he's longing. He says he wants to experience what he knows to be true about God. Christ said, let me just ask you, how is your thirst for God in this season? I remember in March 2020, in the first weeks of the pandemic, I remember reading articles on how to pray becoming a top search engine request on Google all around the world. How to pray was searched on Google to the highest levels they had ever recorded in the first weeks of a global pandemic. Here's what happened. Things later on stabilized. The acute sense of crisis that's still going on in many nations of the world uh, started to dissipate here. And here in Vancouver, people started to recover the sense of stability and that sense of peace faster than in other parts of the world. And consequently, that palpable thirst for God began to dissipate. It receded a bit. See, it happened in our city, and I know it happened in our church. How's your thirst? This says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is a psalm where David feels like he is far away from God and he is longing for him. He wants to experience God for who he knows him to be. And and personally, when I look at this text, I think he's crying out in this way from deep within himself, in his whole being, and from his whole being, he's crying out because I believe that he's experiencing something of the felt absence of God. I believe this is a cry of desperation. But it could be the cry of your heart today too. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So again, how is your thirst for God? Are you comfortable knowing what you know about God or are you yearning for an experience of his nearness and presence with you? That you would experience him in new and fresh ways in your new and challenging trials. How is your thirst for him? Are you trying to thrive in your relationship with God with one foot on the pedal and one foot off or are you pedaling with both feet? That's the question. Is truth leading to experience and experience leading to truth and truth leading to experience and experience leading to truth? Or are you in a bit of a truth cycle? Longing for more of his presence. Hmm. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I think this may be one of the most profound things worded in one of the most boring kinds of ways. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Okay, here's why, here's why I say it. it's a profound truth weirded, worded in a, in a strange and, and maybe even muted kind of way. I owe this to a scholar named Gerald Wilson, but there are two verbs in the Old Testament when we're talking about seeing, which, which in our text it says, I have looked upon you. That's what we're talking about, seeing God. 
One's more often used, and it's a kind of seeing in a, in a more normal sense. One is less often used. One of the terms, one of the two terms, one is less often used, and it has to do with the idea of revelation or prophetic encounter or a vision from God. It's the prophetic encounter and vision of God word that is used here in verse 2. This is the word used of the visions of Ezekiel, the prophet. This is the word used of the visions of Amos, the prophet. This is the kind of seeing, the kind of prophetic encounter, the kind of prophetic revelation that we see in the opening verses of Isaiah and Obadiah and Micah and Nahum, all prophets of God. So in a sense, what I think David is saying here in this psalm is that he is longing for God like a thirsty man in the desert and that his whole being is crying out for an experience of what he knows to be true, to experience in a felt way his truth, the, the, the truth of who God is, that he would, he would take that and he would experience it in, in the midst of his trials and then kind of there's like a bang. Now he's talking about that experience. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have had the revelation of you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. He has experienced this. He he says he, he has. And this is how he knows he's going to be okay. He doesn't just know that he's in an intimate covenant relationship with his God. He has experienced the assurance of that through a revelation of God's power and glory. He's working with both pedals on the bike is what it says. He's not trying to separate out propositional truth and experience in a spiritual way. He's saying they're working hand in hand. He has seen this. He says, you are my God and I have seen you. I have beheld your power and your glory. Truth and experience go hand in hand. And they mutually drive us toward thriving lives in God's world. Now, look at the outcome of this encounter that he has. Verse 2 again says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Again, I have looked upon you. There's something powerful that has happened here. Verse 3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Okay, verse 3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He's not talking about God's steadfast love, his covenantal love, his always and forever love. He's not talking about God's love in an abstract way that's sort of a a mere doctrine to him that was written down on a page somewhere, a, a catechism question that he was asked and knows and memorized the answer to, though those be wonderful and good things. He's talking about God's steadfast love as that truth experienced. As that truth experienced. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is saying a human being experiencing God's love is an even greater gift than life itself. Your steadfast love is better than life. He's in a trial. His life is in turmoil. He might be killed. And he says, your steadfast love is better than life. Do you believe that? Life is pretty good here. Don't answer this too quickly. Search your heart. Don't give a simple answer that you know is true. 
Ask yourself, when I, when I weigh this in the balance, your steadfast love is better than life. Weigh it in the balance. Is that a statement you can say with full integrity? Your steadfast love is better than life. This is the song of the martyrs. The song of the martyrs who believed it was more important for others to hear the gospel than for them to cling to their lives. I remember reading the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They were with a team of people trying to evangelize the Aka Indians in South America. Jim Elliot ends up meeting his death at the tip of a spear of one of the people that they were trying to share God's love with. And Elizabeth Elliot said something to the effect, my husband didn't die when he was killed on the mission field. My husband laid his life down when he surrendered to the call that he would obey God in any circumstance. My husband laid his life down when he said yes to Jesus. Your steadfast love is better than life. This is the song of those rejected by culture because they won't conform to worldliness. This is the song of those fired from their jobs for their Christian faith. This is the song of those rejected from their families because they chose faithfulness to God. This is the song of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, he said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your steadfast love is better than life is the anthem of Paul the Apostle who knew what kind of end he was likely to meet if he continued preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Jesus, the Lord of all. And still he kept preaching. When Paul knew the kind of end that he was likely going to meet and, and he did die a martyr's death, he said to a group of his friends in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Christ City, your steadfast love is better than life. That is only a phrase that you can utter with total confidence when you know that it means submission and surrender to God in either life or death. This is not being cavalier with your life like some kind of stuntman that's you know, constantly flirting with death just to, just to get the thrill of it. This is being deeply thoughtful with your life and your participation in God's world because you know what has been promised to you in the future. You know to whom you belong. And his steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life only makes sense when you have a great confidence in Christ's lordship. When you have a great confidence in the promise of your eternal inheritance, eternal life. And you work out of a death to self mentality that ranks eternal joy as far more weighty than temporal comfort. In Matthew 16, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, through the course of history and up until this moment right now, we don't tell the tales of those who loved their comfort and loved their life so much they were afraid to lose it. We tell the testimonies of men and women of God who, forsaking all else, have obeyed God until the end by saying, your will be done, because your steadfast love is better than life. See, in the world that we live in, your steadfast love is better than life is not just looking at impending martyrdom or the threat of death. It's looking at how you live. Are you willing to sow your life like a seed into the soil? Are you willing to give your every waking moment in the everyday normal stuff of life? Are you willing to sow it into kingdom soil that there might be a harvest of kingdom fruit? Are you going to live for him? You want to do something bold with your life. Our call is to live like this 100% of the time and die if necessary. You can only say that your steadfast love is better than life when you're standing on the truth of who God is and when you're experiencing a relationship with him. And if you want to live in such a way that your whole life says this, you're going to need to exercise both pedals of the Christian life like David in this psalm. Because there are going to be times where you know it to be true, but you're not feeling it and you need to call out for him. And there's going to be times where you have great experiences and you feel like you're at the mountaintop of life and those are wonderful and beautiful. There's also going to be times when you're in the valley and you just have to hang on to the knowledge that God's steadfast love is better than life. Your experience of God will lead to truth and your comprehension and knowledge of God will lead to new experience. You don't have to choose one. In Christ, this is how we live. They go hand in hand. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, right? prophetic revelation, some kind of vision perhaps, beholding your power and glory. David has seen God's power. He has seen God's glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And he's had this kind of revelatory encounter with God where he beholds the power and glory and, and his right response is to say, your steadfast love is better than life. I've belabored it on purpose. What about us? You might not have a vision of the throne room of God and, and in the truest sense, you don't need to because Jesus is the full revelatory vision of the fullness of who God is and what he is like. If you want to see God, if you want a throne room vision, so to speak, open your Bible and read the Gospels. If you want to see Christ exalted, magnified for who he is, go in and read a few chapters. Go John 1. Go Colossians 1. Go Philippians 2. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Go to Revelation chapter 1. And then go to Revelation 21, 22. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Christ exalted, seated on the throne. The nations come. Have a throne room vision. It's in the pages of your scriptures. Ask God to open your eyes that you might experience his love toward you. You know it's true. Experience it. If you're the skeptic who's experiencing it, 
we have truth to help you have a pathway and a guide along the way. It was Jesus who said in John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What a strange thing to say in a certain sense. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that's for us to wrestle with. That's for us to give ourselves to and to follow as the cruciform way of Jesus, the cross-shaped way of Jesus. But, but I want to show you why that matters and why we can do that. Let me put that verse back in the wider context of what Jesus is saying. In John chapter 12, verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat has fa- uh, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the only way to be certain that God's steadfast love was better than life, the only way for us to maintain certainty with that was for Jesus to prove it. And he did. See, Jesus knew that the Father's love was better than life. Which is why he was willing to be the seed sown into the earth that it might burst forth a new resurrection life. Unless... A grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is talking about his death and burial and resurrection. Jesus knew that the Father's love was better than life, which is why he was willing to lay his life down so that we could gain ours. Jesus knew that his task, the reason the Father sent him on mission to save and redeem and reveal what true love looks like, was so that we would be welcomed into it. Jesus went to the cross because the Father's love is better than life. And in David's obedience and desire to please God, he knew this too. He knew that in the depth of sorrow and the trial that he was in, when he was experiencing the felt absence of God, that he was thirsting, that his flesh fainted for God. He knew that he could encounter God once again, that God had not removed himself from David's life, that David was not going to die alone and forgotten because God's steadfast love is better than life. I don't know what you think you need right now, I don't know why you're watching this. I don't know if you're part of the body of Christ City or if you're one of the skeptics I was talking about earlier. You're trying to figure out this Christian story. I don't know who you are and I don't know why you're watching. I don't know what you think you need, but this is what you need. You need the revelation of the truth of God, the revelation of his love, and you need the experience of knowing it's true. Nothing could be more important in this world Let me pray. Father, I ask you that you would take these words from this text, that you would apply it to hearts right now, and that we would all understand in greater measure your power and your glory, that we would see you for who you are, that you would open our eyes, that we would would see 
the truth of who you are, that you would open our ears, that we might hear your voice, that you would open our hearts to believe, and that you would open our hands, that we might live with generosity and love toward others all around us. And God, we ask you that you would help, because we know we can't do it apart from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.